Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. It's Ryan Tripp back again for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies and History channel. We're here today with uh, Professor Sarah Rivett, author of Unscripted America, Indigenous Languages and the Origins of a Literary Nation. Uh, Welcome, Professor Rivett. Thank you. Professor Rivett is Associate Professor of English and American Studies at Princeton University. She's also Director of Graduate Studies. Uh, She's an interdisciplinary scholar specializing in American and transatlantic literature, religion, um, and indigenous history and theory. She's the author of a celebrated study, uh, The Science of the Soul, previous study, The Science of the Soul in Colonial New England, which uh, won the uh, Brewer Prize for the American Society of Church History in 2011 and 12. Her second book, Unscripted America, the subject of this uh, podcast, uh, was just actually recently published uh, less than a month ago. um, And we're going to be talking about it with her today. Um, Again, welcome, Professor Rivet. So uh, for Unscripted America, what shaped your there's a New England and New France comparative approach to the first half to two thirds of the study? So there's a kind of a focus on New England and New France. What shaped your approach? So this project began as a study of um, Anglo-Protestant missionary linguistics. It didn't start as a comparative study. And I was particularly fascinated by um, 17th century missionary John Eliot, who uh, embarked on the task of learning Massachusetts, the language. He undertook a substantial effort to translate Christian texts into Massachusetts in the mid to late 17th century, including the Bible. And I got the idea for this book in reading the correspondence between Eliot and the natural philosopher Robert Boyle. Eliot described to Boyle the difficulty of the translational work that he was doing. And as I began my research on the topic more broadly, I realized that the French Jesuits were, in fact, much more um, accomplished missionary linguistics, and that my study really needed to take both of these European groups of missionaries into account. Since the 16th century, the Jesuit college system had been training its missionaries how to learn the languages of the populations they wished to convert so that the archive of indigenous language texts left by the French Jesuit presence in North America is fairly substantial in comparison to the Anglo-Protestants. And there are some really intriguing differences between the French and the Protestants, the Anglo-Protestants. The English crown sent a printer to the Massachusetts Bay in 1666 for the explicit purpose of printing texts in Massachusetts. The French Jesuits requested one, but the, the crown, their crown denied that request. 
um, by the time of the imperial wars in the 18th century, there was a striking difference in colonial attitudes towards native languages. The British became increasingly insistent that the native populations they hoped to convert learn English, while the French became even more adept at indigenous languages and more committed to preserving them um, through Christianity. So I felt, uh, as I did my research, that a comparative study was really integral to the story that I wanted to tell. I wanted this book to explain the ideas about language that Europeans brought with them to North America, and then to examine the ways that the language encounter with native populations put tremendous pressure on these these ideas and called them into, into question. So these seemingly different theologies espoused by the Jesuits and the Puritans represent opposite ends of a European spectrum of religious history, and I thought it would be useful to explore this contrast. What I discovered was surprising. So, and the first thing that I'm going to say about that surprise is not surprising. Um, we can, we kind of all know that differences of theology, colonialism, and imperialism would impact the way that different missionaries would approach um, indigenous languages. Um, but the outcome of these efforts was fairly commensurate. In both cases, missionaries frequently came across a phrase um, that was untranslatable. And this presented a tremendous challenge, not only for the practical aspects of missionary work, but also for the very fabric of Christianity. Failures of translation elucidated competing cosmologies. And when these cosmologies became ir ir irreconcilable with Christianity, missionaries were confronted, were forced to confront the limits of their own beliefs. Um, so in other words, the very practice of translating Christian texts into indigenous languages cause the missionaries to start to question the very basis of Christianity. Interesting. Did this, how did this approach facilitate or alter uh, comparisons among and between Algonquin groups and uh, Algonquin language groups and uh, Iroquoian language groups? I noticed there's, you do both in the book. Okay. So how did the comparison impact the, yes. the comparison between European uh, missionaries impact the comparison between Algonquian and Iroquoian groups? Yes. Um, Right. So it actually uh, enhanced my ability to compare those mm -hmm. various groups. Um, I mean, uh, in some cases, such as Mohawk, we had um, French Jesuits and Anglo-Protestants both working to convert that population. And so I'm able to kind of, um, I was able to sort of identify, okay, so these were the key phrases that both French Jesuits and Anglo-Protestants um, stumbled over in their translations. And this is important because um, the nature of this project or really any number of projects that try to try to examine indigenous history, you have to sift through an archive that was written by Europeans from a colonial perspective. And so in comparing these two groups, which are sort of radically different in terms of their theology, in terms of their um, practices of colonization, you can really see that if they're stumbling over the same thing, then probably what that indicates is um, some aspect of Ir the Iroquoian cosmos or um, the Mohawk cosmos that neither missionary group was able to fully reconcile with their own um, set of beliefs. So in the book, uh, you contend that the vocabulary lists in Roger Williams's 1643 key into the language of America, quote, are not designed to reflect or provide linguistic expertise, as is the case with French Jesuit dictionaries. Rather, the words arranged into two columns serve the opposite purpose of reminding the reader of the fallen state of the world. A line divides each column, suggesting that even though there may be a one-to-one -one correspondence between each Narragansett phrase and English translation, there's also a sense of the impenetrability across linguistic divide. In contrast to the French Jesuit Brebeuf, whose relations contain ample disposition on Huron-Wendat grammar, it is, it is as if Key into the Language of America by Roger Williams is not a text about language at all. Can you elaborate on this contention? Yes. Um, so Roger Williams's Key into the Language of America is a text that I thought a lot about and 
struggled a fair amount with in terms of how to interpret it and how to integrate it into this project on essentially early linguistic writing. Roger Williams is somewhat anomalous in the study. He was not motivated by missionary work in the same way that the others that others were. He was motivated instead by theological and political dissent, specifically from the Massachusetts Bay Orthodoxy. He arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1635, and soon after his arrival, his dissenting views surfaced, and the government tried to send him back to England. When he learned about this, he fled south to found the colony of Providence and established a good rapport with the Narragansett. Then he went to London in 1643 to try to secure a more legal base for Rhode Island. And it was during this time that he wrote The Key into the Language of America. He was actually on the ship en route to to England. Um, And so I'm giving this context to you to, to try to demonstrate that Williams had many other things on his mind um, other than this sort of task of recording Narragansett words for other missionaries. What he tells us in the preface is that this is a a text designed to help his own memory. It's a record of his own spiritual identity caught between the world of the Narragansett, which with whom he had made his physical and spiritual home, and the world of England, a country that was at once his home and also a space of deep spiritual alienation. So the text is written as an attempt to bridge these worlds and to try to reconcile these competing kind of frameworks um, within Williams's own spiritual identity. He's not really interested in cultural ethnography as such, um, in the way that the French Jesuits were in the same time period. Rather, what he wants to do is to show um, an English audience that the Narragansett are actually exemplary exemplary models of civility. So the reason that I say that the text is not about language at all is because Williams displays very little interest in how Narragansett actually works. Um, I make this case in contrast to Paul Lejeune and Jean de Brébeuf, who are his Jesuit contemporaries, who made concerted efforts to learn Huron, who wrote dictionaries, translated catechisms, adapted Christmas carols into Huron. They were interested in learning the language for a functional purpose and also to increase their their knowledge of um, so that they could be better missionaries, essentially. Williams, by contrast, only has the simple vocabulary list, and it's kind of folded into a, a text that has lots of other things going on. So it's not a how-to manual. There's no pronunciation key. There's no kind of clear set of, of definitions. It really doesn't function as a key into the language at all, despite its title. And the reason for this is that Williams actually didn't care about converting the Narragansett. Um, and he didn't care about it because he was convinced that um, it couldn't happen, that that Native Americans could not be converted to Christianity until the second coming of Christ. Um, he makes this clear in a, in a theological tract that he publishes just a couple years later entitled Christian Means Make Not Christians. Williams believed that people would be converted after the second coming um, and that the world was actually so fallen that words could not become vehicles for spiritual truths. So the reason he has Narragansett words in the key at all is that the key is written for a future time after the second coming of Christ, when the elect members of the community at that future date would be able to understand uh, Narragansett. Um, you mentioned uh, Williams's ethnography um, in your book. You argue that Williams's ethnography, and this is just touching on some of the things you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. Williams' ethnography is a means of, and I like this, a means of studying difference in order to then explain it away. Can you, again, can you allow, can you explain uh, what what you mean by that, explaining it away? Yeah, absolutely. So it it kind of goes back to what the claim that I'm, that I'm making in this book about the status of the key as a primarily theological tract Mm. in that. There's something about Williams's belief that makes him good at ethnography. He believes in liberty of conscience. He believes that um, religion um, should not be mandated by the state. He believes essentially in a separation between church and state. 
and so it means that he's able to observe the Narragansett population in all of their activities in a more disinterested manner than his contemporaries who were observing them with the goal of conversion to Christianity. So there are many elements of the key where we see a a kind of record of Narragansett practice, of salutations, of rituals around food, of uh, kind of community organization. And um, they are kind of ethnographic in the sense that we understand that term today. However, for Williams, he didn't have a goal of observing culture for its own sake in the text. What he wanted to do is um, demonstrate a civil culture and to use that civil culture as a kind of model of civility um, that was to a large degree um, launched as a kind of critique against the English um, for their you know, incivility, which he, uh, his, his perception of their incivility at that, at that particular moment in religious history. And so, um, so it's, it's a cultural ethnography that doesn't go anywhere. What it ends up doing is folding into Williams's larger um, theological kind of statement, which is essentially that the world is fallen and um, conversion will happen, but only at the moment of Christ's second second coming. So it's not a, an ethnography that kind of opens up an avenue to a new culture. What it does is is it is it reaffirms uh, Williams's own culture and his own spiritual identity. So uh, you further argue that in um, moving a bit away from Roger Williams, uh, that in 1635, and I'm quoting here, uh, the establishment of French as an official national language also allowed for more creative translations among Jesuit missionaries in New France. You've already touched on this. In other words, the stronger the hierarchy, quoting you, and national bureaucracy surrounding a language the more relaxed colonial missionaries could be about taking artistic liberties with Christian translations. In contrast, by elevating, quote, an individual's relationship to God, Puritans made vernacular worship more democratic, while also tightening the need to control the precision of translation and the uses of language among lay populations. In addition, Jesuits and Puritans disagreed on the capacity of language to adequately convey the spiritual meaning to affect a spiritual's transformation. What were the consequences of these differences and disagreements for universal Protestant translators of English and Catholic translators of common French in the early to mid-17th century? Thanks for that question, Ryan. You really kind of honed in on some of the the, uh, kind of to my mind, denser sections of some of these these early chapters, and I appreciate having the opportunity to try to elucidate them a little bit more. Um, I mean, essentially, um, it seems that that what you're asking is is what's the sort of upshot of the difference in, in translation between English and and Catholicism, <laughs> and I. I'll kind of summarize it in in, in this way. Protestants are much more willing to translate all kinds of texts in the 17th century, including sermons, conversion treaties, um, scripture. Um, All of these texts were translated into Massachusetts um, and into Wampanoag. Um, And they were also much more willing to print and circulate these texts. In fact, um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they imported a printer for the specific purpose of printing um, um, Indian, American Indian um, Christian texts. The Catholics were much more cautious about what got translated and also about print distribution. So catechisms, fine to translate, for example, but the Bible was not for the Catholics. And starting with the earliest French Jesuit efforts, there was always a discrepancy between the linguistic knowledge being accumulated by the missionaries and the knowledge they were willing to circulate among native converts. And so scripture was never translated. It remained kind of under the auspices of the missionaries who were performing the the conversion ceremonies. So the reason for this difference 
stemmed from a basic discrepancy over what counted as evidence of conversion in the Catholic and Protestant case. French Jesuits were much more comfortable with rote memorization as an avenue to conversion. They believed that if a Huron woman, woman, for example, repeated the Lord's Prayer often enough, then the effects of its Christian meaning would just sort of penetrate into her being, and the spirit could move from this outer ritualized form into an inner experience. The Protestants had a huge problem with ritual that wasn't accompanied by an inward feeling. And so they were very uncomfortable with rote memorization. They believed that conversion had to begin with an inner experience and then move to its outer expression in the world. And this is the whole basis of the Protestant um, concept of sola scriptura and sola fides, or by um, scripture and faith alone. On the one hand, to read the Bible and process its meaning um, would kind of give an an individual insight into divine grace. On the other hand, um, the expression of this grace had to be um, very tightly kind of controlled. So Protestants had a much harder time assessing evidence of grace. There was no sort of clear formula for doing this because they believed that as soon as you established a clear formula, um, then you risked the danger of um, a person being able to sort of fake their conversion or to uh, mistakenly identify something as conversion that actually wasn't. So, So essentially, that's the kind of reason why there are these two very different models of conversion or of um, translation that that translation and conversion are deeply um, overlapping and and interdependent uh, concepts in the 17th century. You know, at various points in your book, uh, there's an interrelationship between uh, native languages and, uh, you know, surrounding material cultures, as well as uh, European and native symbology. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, Mi'kmaq dialects, you argue, quote, that nouns fall into animate and inanimate categories. Rather than a tense-based structure, Mi'kmaq verbs relate to how speakers and listeners connect to each other based on shared understanding. Speakers narrate events according to how they experience them. Experiences connect to a broader spiritual cosmology, as you've already touched upon. And then between 1675 and 1687, uh, a recollect father named uh, Christian Leclerc of New France uh, created uh, Mi'kmaq ideograms by writing with charcoal on birch bark. Ideograms, coincidentally, uh, by Leclerc that are featured on the cover of your study. You argue that these instructional tablets, quote, may have unwittingly dovetailed with the Mi'kmaq cosmology as animate objects. Both the birch bark and its charcoal ideograms were infused with the spirit. The birch bark forged continuity between the Mi'kmaq conception of the spirit residing within matter and the Catholic belief in the sacrament as a symbol of the body and blood of Christ, where the symbol also contains divine power. Affirming Leclerc's desire to find Catholic equivalents among the Mi'kmaq was the presence of a cross. So in this milieu... How and why did the meaning of a cross change from the early 17th century when, quote, the Mac did not convert to Christianity to the late 17th century when the cross existed in Mi'kmaq culture as an object whose value had been reassigned? All right. So I should say at the outset that um, a lot of, not a lot of my study, but some of my interpretations that have to do with um, trying to kind of access um, indigenous spirituality in the 17th century, in the 18th century, um, take a certain amount of um, interpretive liberty. Um, And this includes the section that you just read, and that I am being a little bit speculative when I try to kind of imagine how 17th century Mi'kmaq would have interpreted um, the birch bark with the charcoal ideograms. Um, So having said that as a sort of maybe quasi disclaimer, but one that I'll I'll stand by in a minute, I was utterly fascinated in doing this research by what Christian Leclerc did with these ideograms. Basically, 
what he did in the 1670s is to say that he have found an indigenous system of writing. And that in and of itself is, is sort of fascinating because there are forms of um, indigenous writing in North America, but, um, you know, not um, numerous forms. And he claimed to have found these ideograms um, as a form of Mi'kmaq writing. And then what he did is he said that he adapted the Catholic catechism so that it would be easier for the Mi'kmaq to memorize because the catechism was then rendered within their own ideogrammic um, system of writing. And this approach seems to have been effective, unlike previous attempts, um, because the Christianized ideograms survived hundreds of years, and they were then passed down um, in Mi'kmaq culture, and they still exist in Nova Scotia today. So we really don't know whether Leclerc's claim to have discovered an indigenous system of writing had any basis in fact. Um, It's quite possible that he found a few cultural symbols. It's quite possible that he invented some symbols, that he took a great deal of sort of um, artistic liberty with with what he did. Um, And of course, as a sort of 21st century scholar, I have no way of knowing how these cultural and spiritual objects were experienced by the indigenous converts to Christianity. So what what I'm doing in this section of the book is trying to um, incorporate some educated guesswork to speculate on why some forms of evangelization might have worked when others did not. And there's so much that we don't know and actually can never know about 17th century indigenous culture. Existing archives are relatively scant. They're also authored by European colonists, so needless to say, they're biased. Um, So I think that some speculation, as long as it's um, kind of rooted in ethnographic or ethno-historical studies, can be interpretively useful. So um, to get to this question of um, the cross that you asked about the symbol of the cross, um, where, again, uh, Leclerc claims to have discovered the cross um, among the Mi'kmaq. What I have to say here is also speculative because everything that um, I know about the cross in 17th century Mi'kmaq culture comes from stuff that was written by the missionaries. Uh, so to say that this was a biased perspective is an absolute understatement. <laughs> what the missionaries wanted to do was to identify the cross as a pre-existing condition of Christianity. That is a divine sign that the Mi'kmaq were in fact biblical people preconditioned for conversion all along. Um, So obviously this is not the case. And the facts as we know them indicate that there was a history of contact before Leclerc um, arrived in Nova Scotia. There were fishermen, there were fur traders who were interacting with the Mi'kmaq. Um, they weren't, their objective was not conversion, which is why I say in the book that um, conversion didn't happen earlier on in the 17th century. Um, what they were doing is trying to sort of make money through fur trade. And so the cross um, as a symbol that operated um, between fur traders and the Mi'kmaq was most likely a symbol of kind of diplomacy um, that got incorporated into Mi'kmaq culture and, and kind of reassigned value. So by the 1670s and 1680s, Leclerc was the one to reassign um, the cross to a new value, to I kind of identify it as a latent Christian object and to try to sort of like reorient the Mi'kmaq relationship to this object. I appreciate your, can- I appreciate your candor. That's definitely the nature of the work. You contend as well that going to the British side of things, that quote, as uh, British philological interests became more centered on the specificity of place and notions of Celtic as the primary antecedent to modern English, missionary knowledge of North American languages faded into the background of Anglo philosophical interests. You further argue that, quote, the rise of the British Empire required conformity and uniformity with the dictates of the Protestant faith and necessitated the implementation of English language instruction, as we've just uh, sort of heard. In contrast, uh, French Jesuits hoped to, quote, 
translate linguistic knowledge and the capacity for communication into a protective shield of indigenous warriors that would fend off the British. Uh, yet you also uh, hold that, quote, indigenous language phil- philosophers taught Puritans, Anglicans, and French Jesuits that the, quote, relativity and aesthetic value of North American tongues persistently undermined imperial script that each European power was at pains to inscribe upon the land and its inhabitants. Can you elaborate on this uh, contention, particularly for the French Jesuit uh, Sebastian Rao, who's in your book, his 1690s admiration of the Wabanakian version of a subject-object order and the Wabanaki method, quote, of suturing speaker to object and syntactically linking verb and object? Yes, I think um, if I'm if I'm understanding the question um, correctly, um, essentially, um, you're interested in me speaking more about the connection between the French Jesuit admiration for certain aesthetic qualities within the indigenous languages and the kind of um, broader imperial goals, and putting that in in contrast to the British movement away Correct. from a sort of, yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, I think it's a fascinating question and, um, essentially I don't, I don't know, cause I haven't thought about it that much before you pose the question of whether the French aesthetic admiration for native languages facilitated imperial goals. Um, I do know that both are happening simultaneously. And to get at this through Rawl, what Sebastian Rawl does um, when he's learning Abnaki is he sits in wigwams for um, hours. He says six hours a day. And he describes himself as um, becoming a student in, in this study. So he listens to Abnaki correct his pronunciation and, um, fine tune his language skills. And through this process, what, what Rawl says is, um, that he develops an incredible appreciation for the language and that he recognizes it as beautiful. Um, and this is compelling for the kind of, um, reasons that it seems to represent a sort of breakthrough on the kind of overarching narrative of colonization. Like, great, Rawl is recognizing that this language is um, beautiful, that it has an, an inherent integrity, that he's recognizing it on its own terms. Um, for me, that kind of uh, realization is mitigated to some degree by the fact that what Rawl is, what Rawl does, one sees in the French Jesuit relations um, for for generations. That is, it, it becomes a kind of literary trope of submitting to study, sitting in the wigwams, realizing that the language is in fact beautiful. And so, I never really know how much of this is um, a, a kind of authentic ethnographic recognition of linguistic difference or a sort of literary trope, a kind of convention of Jesuit writing. Um, What I do know is that it does make the Jesuits very good linguists. And so by the time the imperial um, wars come about, by the time the French Jesuits really need to use their language skills to fight the British, um, they're very good at it. And so it's an interesting question, the extent to which um, an aesthetic appreciation facilitated that kind of imperial agenda. I mean, I suppose it did, and that's that's possibly a sort of negative consequence of, of aesthetic appreciation. Um, on the side of the, the British, um, it's interesting because the same thing essentially happens. That is, starting with um, experience Mayhew um, in the 1720s, Experience Mayhew is sort of far and away the best Anglo-Protestant linguist um, to date. He uh, grew up on Martha's Vineyard playing with Wampanoag children. And so what he says in the beginning of his pamphlet on their language is that he learned Wampanoag like he did his own mother tongue. Um, And so he really has an appreciation for the language that goes way beyond 
those who came before. And he recognizes it as beautiful. Um, but he does this with the opposite effect of what happens in the French case, because right around that same time, British imperial interests in North American languages all but sort of cease to exist. That is, um, on the other side of the Atlantic, there's really not the same interest in North American languages. Um, so in effect, ideas about British ideas about indigenous languages um, are are that they that they're beautiful but useless, and that becomes the kind of eighteenth um, century uh, conclusion that Anglo Protestants draw. Um, and so there's a divergence between the use value of indigenous languages and an aesthetic appreciation which persists beyond, even though the use value starts to become incredibly diminished. You know, this is a couple decades later, but um, can you um, elaborate or at least mention uh, uh, Francois Piquet's uh, a French missionary, his emphasis on song over writing systems in uh, Mohawk battle hymns, for example, and then his uh, silk banner, its relationship to the mm-hmm. silk banner in your book with a quote, a cross and also the symbol of each clan composing the five nations of the Iroquois carried in onto the battlefields of the seven years war. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. So PK is interesting to put in conversation with Rawl because whereas I know Rawl thought Abnaki was beautiful. I actually have no idea if PK thought Mohawk was beautiful. I didn't, um, see that in any of his writing. Most of his archive is at the Newberry Library in in Chicago. A lot of it is in manuscript. He's a fascinating uh, individual because he became very proficient in Mohawk and um, very effective at essentially military intelligence during the Seven Years' War. Um, He focused on song, I think, because he knew that this was... um, part of Mohawk culture and that translating hymns into Mohawk was a really effective way to get the Mohawk to kind of um, practice forms of Christianity in their own native tongue. It was a way of sort of inscribing the French Jesuit presence on um, the Mohawk um, population at this time to sort of leave a a kind of lasting uh, remnant of of French um, Catholicism. And so I think he chose song um, over writing systems because if it was, it was effective and he could reach more people through song. Um, And the banner I just found fascinating in part because um, it's the same uh, technique that was used in the Roman Empire to kind of rally um, troops during times of war. And I think Piquet imports this directly, that he's trying to, in a sense, um, mobilize the Mohawk toward the French um, goal during the war. The French, it's worth saying, it's important that um, the numbers of French Jesuits paled in comparison to the British at this time. The numbers were roughly sort of like 50,000 to a couple million. And so the only chance that the French had to maintain any stronghold in North America was by relying on um, indigenous allies. And so they really had to work strategically to enlist um, indigenous um, tribes within um, their their imperial war, and language became a kind of key component of how to do this effectively. Language and the sort of symbolism through the banner, and then also the kind of um, uh, song as a mechanism for creating a, a kind of um, shared culture that eventuated into a kind of shared battle cry. Duly noted. Uh, <clears throat> speaking about the uh, the the British side of things uh, during his 1750s Stockbridge mission, Jonathan Edwards, a missionary, a British missionary, sac- his sacred topology um, advanced the notion that quoting you native words are useful only as ancient artifacts of a long forgotten past that was archeological rather than biblical, which became an ideal that made a lasting impact on American letters 
But Edwards believed that, quote, cosmologies and epistemologies of nature and the supernatural absorbed from American Indian culture offered a method of salvaging American grace and millennial purpose. Um, In addition to the uh, 1789 pamphlet on the Mohegan language by Jonathan Edwards Jr., how and why did this sacred topology, if it did at all, uh, contribute to later Thomas Jefferson's later vocabulary lists um, and his hope, quote, to discover a radical acquaintance with Asian languages by, quote, recording a series of sounds through phonetic reproduction in standardized English letters of a purportedly timeless Native American language that, quote, could be remapped into a new system of natural historical signification. So I really appreciate that you asked this question um, because it um, gives me a chance to elaborate on something that I see as one of the central hinges of the book. And that is, how do we get from biblical linguistics as it was practiced by missionaries in the 17th and early 18th century to um, Enlightenment linguistics as it was practiced by Thomas Jefferson and and others. Um, And what is the kind of connection between between us? And I see Jonathan Edwards and also his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., as integral to how this shift happens. By the time Jonathan Edwards was... uh, missionizing and he was he was a very kind of like accidental missionary he wasn't that committed to the cause he kind of ended up in stockbridge um but he sort of only did it for a few years um but by the time he was performing missionary work the idea of indigenous languages as sort of beautiful but useless was really kind of ensconced within the anglo-protestant missionary worldview um so Edwards um, encouraged his son to learn Mohican, but he himself didn't know Mohican. Um, And his view on language, on indigenous languages was that they essentially did not fit into a biblical scheme. So in contrast to a 17th century, say John Eliot, who actually believed that North American languages were part of an ancient biblical past and they could be translated and redeemed and brought into a biblical present. Jonathan Edwards did not. Jonathan Edwards thought that um, Mohican words were sort of remnants of a past civilization, of a past mode of sort of speaking that wasn't about the Anglo-Protestant Um, present. And so when he encouraged his son to learn Mohican, I think he had in mind that it would make his son a more effective missionary, a more effective minister, and so on and so forth. But um, he didn't see it as um, central to the Protestant agenda, the way that a 17th century counterpart would. And so what I find interesting about this Edwards Jr. pamphlet is that it was sent to um, George Washington, who had an interest in um, native languages, a kind of um, hobby of his. And um, it also was happening at the exact same moment that Thomas Jefferson became interested in indigenous languages. And for Thomas Jefferson, he very much believed that um, native tribes were dying out naturally. And that, um, as he says in his notes on the state of Virginia, their languages have to be recorded before the people who speak them are all gone. And so for, for Jefferson, the, the project of collecting and um, really collecting, not learning, but the project of collecting and transliterating indigenous languages was about constructing an archaeological pass. To, to the United States and to America. Um, it was not about kind of learning the languages for any practical purpose within the world. It was, it was, it was just about kind of um, preserving some remnant of an American antiquity for the American Philosophical Society for kind of future generations. Um, and 
So essentially, what I want to claim with this Edwards to Jefferson trajectory that you so neatly spelled out in in your question is that there's a movement from the kind of sacred typology that Edwards espouses to a secular typology that Jefferson espouses, where um, we see the American Indians in Jefferson's worldview as a civilization that's a precursor to the rise of an Anglo-American civilization, the next great civilization to take its place. Jefferson wanted to sort of naturalize this as an inevitable historical process and to see indigenous um, people as, as types of a past, types of a great civilization whose function historically was to kind of pave the way for Anglo-American um, United States uh, to kind of emerge as a as a um, as a power and as a kind of consolidated nation by the 1790s and early 19th century. In your uh, final chapter, in your conclusion, uh, you argue you uh, argue that author uh, James Fenimore Cooper, we're all pretty familiar with um, his 19th century uh, quote leather stocking tales, uh, Lenai Lenape. Uh, appears as the ancient Ur language of America, forecasting grand narratives of national rebirth with, with prophetic certainty. And then in the, the last chapter, uh, you contend that, quote, yet like Nadi Bumpo's sole capacity to speak the uh, indigenous languages, the Indian tongues come to stand in for the thing they also exemplify the impossibility of authentic knowledge transmission between the transitioning civilizations. Ultimately, the knowledge of American nature including, encoded within the Delaware tongue and other indigenous languages could not be transferred or absorbed into the fabric of American nationalism. How and why then uh, does an indigenous fabric, um, in your conclusion, that preceded quote, the rise of U.S. nationalism continuously reappear as inextricably bound to the land and therefore an, as integral to the meeting of America? That's, that's a great question as well. Again, getting to the heart of one of the more sort of ambitious claims that I'm trying to make in the book. Um, so James Fenimore Cooper, um, potentially a kind of odd figure to conclude with or to conclude in the sense of the final chapter. Um, he did not know uh, Lenape Lenape himself. He learned everything that he knew through John Heckwelder, who was a Moravian missionary who knew um, Lenape Lenape quite well and was the primary source text for the leather stocking tales. Um, so most of what um, Cooper says about the Mohican, about um, the Delaware in um, his novels comes from Heckwelder. So what Cooper learned from Heckwelder was that there is something, going back to beauty, incredibly kind of um, poetic about Lenny Lenape and um, something incredibly kind of with an inherent capacity for metaphor. So Cooper was attracted to what Heckwelder said about the beauty of Lenny Lenape. And what Cooper wanted to do in his novels was to try to emulate that beauty in his own prose as a way of making, in a sense, an indigenous Anglo-American literary form, something that came from North America that wasn't emulating literary forms from Britain. Um, so, so Cooper is an odd um, author of, of translation because he doesn't himself understand the language. He's getting descriptions of its beauty from a missionary. Um, and so his novels aren't entirely successful in their capacity to translate. And this is something that Cooper, I think, registers through the character of, of Nani Bumpo, who's the only one who can speak. And so often what we as readers read in the novels is something like, um, you know, two people, two characters are having a conversation in Lene Lenape. No one can understand it except for Daddy Bumpo. But what we need to know is that it's beautiful. And, and so Cooper's not exactly translating in the sense of making legible 
the Delaware tongue or Delaware culture, what he's doing is trying to describe a manner of speaking. That's beautiful. And then in other points in the novel that he's trying to sort of emulate at the level of prose itself. So that a metaphor um, of a river um, is sort of operating in a fashion of how Cooper understands Delaware metaphors to operate. Um, So the reason that I say that despite the fact that Cooper sort of failed to transfer Delaware knowledge into American nationalism um, is because even though he sort of failed to to translate, um, what his novels open up is a sense of how powerfully ideas about the indigenous past, ideas about indigenous language played into the formation of the canon of early American literature. And what what I hope that my book will um, at least get some people to think about is um, the necessity of understanding indigenous history alongside American literary production because of the way in which for for authors of the time, it really was this tremendous kind of um, imaginative world that they were grappling to to reconcile and to try to sort of figure out how to preserve in a way and how to kind of fold into different aesthetic forms. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I have one uh, final question. Uh, What can we expect from you next? Do you have any uh, other research projects on the table? I'm at the very, very beginnings of, of that you can disclose that. <laughs> um, that I can disclose. Um, I mean, I've been thinking about a book on the supernatural, and I suppose its its connection to this um, is that um, there is an aspect of, in response to your last question, of what is the status of indigenous history within early American literature. Well, it's it's a kind of haunted presence within early American literature. I mean, this is something that the indigenous past isn't always kind of explicitly rendered within um, literary texts, but it's very much working through the fabric of a lot of early American authors. And so I'm thinking about the supernatural in that sense as a way of kind of teasing out um, parts of history that um, writers of fiction, of novels in particular, were trying to grapple with and different forms of haunting, both secular and sacred, that might have uh, informed their, their methods for, for reconciling the past and fiction. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So to our listeners, that will conclude our podcast for today. Thank you, Professor Rivet, for your excellent, excellent, concise, but also precise uh, responses. This is Ryan Tripp uh, signing off for the New Books Network, the Native American Studies and History channel. I'll probably You'll probably be hearing from me pretty soon in the next couple of weeks. I will be returning. And um, I thank you again, uh, Professor Rivet, and our listeners as well. Thanks. Thank you, Ryan.